0: What a blessing it is to be together with one another and before the throne of God and have confidence through the Son that God welcomes our presence and welcomes our worship as a loving Father. Such a blessing And, and I'm personally very thankful that you're here to be a part of this gathering and I know the congregation welcomes you and I want to join them in that welcome. This week we've studied a lot about some things that Solomon encountered in his life and his discussion about those encounters in the book of Ecclesiastes. That has been the topic that the elders have requested that I discuss with you this week. There's something that's sort of ironic about the unfolding of this story as we've seen it. We look at Solomon, we we see a man who had a lot of power, a lot of influence. He was highly thought of, great notoriety. He was a very, very wealthy man, a powerful and successful king over a kingdom that adored him for the duration of his reign. He was just, from the standpoint of an earthly life, his life had all the appearances of a very blessed man. And yet when we look at this man and we look at his story, we see a substantial window in his life where in such a privileged life we find despair. And that despair is bound up in the hope of things under the sun. That under the sun, the things Solomon experienced were vain because he used them for selfish purposes. And that ruined and tainted what could have been great blessings from God. Ecclesiastes is a great retrospect on his life that reveals that thought to us. We have another story in Scripture about another man that we know as Lazarus. And his life appears to have been the antithesis of what we see in Solomon. Not a privileged life at all, but a very, very poor man. Not just a little poor, but poor as Job's turkey poor. That poor, like so poor he had to lean on a fence post to gobble. That's how poor he was. Laying at the rich man's gate. Sores. Apparently homeless. Apparently hungry and sick and in great need. And his only comfort... In such an underprivileged life, with a gathering of dogs that licked his wounds or his sores. That's all. And in such an underprivileged life, so different from Solomon's, we see hope. Whereas when we look at Solomon's life of such great privilege, we see despair. And it all boils down to what happened when life ends. I want to study with you today about lessons that Lazarus learned. Things that his life experience and what happened to him beyond the grave teaches you and me about what's important in life and what matters the most. And I hope that this stark contrast with Solomon's experiment and experience will help the lessons stand out in our minds because big part of Solomon's problem was that living life under the sun, he began to use so many blessings in a way that was different than how the plan of God would be for a person's life in terms of the uh, biblical principles that we're taught and how to appreciate the things of this life. Rather than using them, Solomon come to misuse them. His life had a misguided focus. A failed philosophy. And we look at those things that Solomon did wrong and it reminds us of mental mistakes we make in the way we view things in life. And lessons that Lazarus learned teach us better than the mistakes that Solomon made. Let's read the story about Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 beginning at verse 19. Jesus said there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. That story that relates to the circumstance of the rich man, but we stop our reading here because our, our focus this morning is on Lazarus and the lessons that he learned. And the verses which we've just now read and you're hearing together speak enough to lay before us these lessons that he learned that show principles that really shed important light on the story of Solomon and the conclusions that he reached in the book of Ecclesiastes. Lazarus learned lessons about wealth and poverty. We look at wealth in Ecclesiastes and we see it as a blessing and yet we also see it as a curse. It's a curse in the sense that it doesn't satisfy and people who focus on their wealth live unfulfilled lives. If that's all they've got, then all they have is under the sun. But then Solomon speaks of wealth and prosperity, whether small or great, as potential A blessing from God that we can enjoy through a spiritual lens. And we talked about a lot of that this week. But with that thought, some people develop the mentality. And a lot of people today, unfortunately, have this mistaken idea as seeing people who have wealth as being people who are pleasing to God because they're blessed. And people who suffer poverty must be having those problems because they're displeasing to God. When you read the book of Job, you see that his friends thought like that. When they saw Job had been a man of wealth and he lost all that wealth with the calamities that befell him. And then not only did he lose his wealth, but he lost his children and he lost his wife's respect and he lost his health. He he lost his respect in the community. And they saw all that abject poverty that swiftly came upon Job's life as an indication of God's disfavor. They were wrong. That's how they saw it. God Himself testified in the book that Satan had moved God against him, against Job, without cause. Job had done nothing to specifically or particularly deserve the things that he suffered. That poverty was not a sign of God's displeasure, but Job's friends thought it was, and some people today think the same way. They teach what we sometimes refer to as a gospel of prosperity, and a, a lot of the uh, a lot of this message really re- reverberates in varying degrees in different denominations and mega churches and televangelists and so forth like this. And the idea basically goes like this. If you're good and you really live by faith and your life is pleasing to God, God wants you to prosper and he'll make you to prosper. And if you're not prospering, well, there's got to be something wrong with your faith. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of times the remedy to that faith issue is for that particular individual to write another bigger check to whatever particular ministry is sponsoring that preaching. It's sort of funny how that's always the key to getting more faith is donating more money. And I want to tell you, that gospel of prosperity is wrong. And different people teach this in different degrees. And I want to offer some things that represent sort of the more extreme degree of that to put in our minds the fact that this is a real idea. This gospel of prosperity, it's something that's out there, and Lazarus learned that's not true. Now imagine living life under that assumption that if I'm righteous, God will prosper me, and it's all about whether or not I prosper in this life. How far does that put us right back where Solomon was living? Trying to find fulfillment in this life rather than looking in eternity for our reward from God. You kind of see a similarity there. Let's look at some quotes. These are, I've taken directly from the publishings of the different ministries that teach what I'm labeling as the gospel of prosperity. Health and wealth belong to the believer. What about Lazarus? He didn't have good health and he certainly didn't have good wealth. Does that mean he wasn't a believer? Well, if he wasn't a believer, then why was he saved? Lazarus learned this isn't true. I believe with all my heart that God wants us to prosper. In fact, I believe that prosperity is an expression of God's love to us. Now, please understand, I'm not just talking about money. Prosperity includes money, but is more than money. Again, another quote taken from uh, one of the ministries that represents this particular point of view in somewhat of an extreme. I want you to notice what that all boils down to. Wealth, prosperity, money. Is that what Solomon's life became about? Was that what his life was like when he backed up and said, this is vain? Did he have a bad attitude about the physical blessings in this life? And did that contribute to his depressed state of mind in Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 17? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yet here we are today, years later, with such clear teachings and scriptures, such as the book of Ecclesiastes. And here we are today with people insisting, well, but if you're living right, God will give you wealth, prosperity, money, good health. What does that do to the person that's struggling with health problems? I think some of you have health problems right now. If you haven't had don't aren't having them now, you've had them in the past. Well, if you're over them, does that mean you were sinful when you had them and now all of a sudden you got better, so God made you better? Some of you might not be financially prosperous right now. You might have a hard time rubbing two nickels together because you just don't have much at your disposal. And you might look around you and find somebody else that's more prosperous. Does that mean they're more righteous? Does that mean they've got better faith? Lazarus learned better. According to the Bible, your physical, material, and financial prosperity depend on your spiritual prosperity. Think about that. That's saying that if I'm spiritually prosperous, that means I'll be materially prosperous. Is that what Solomon experienced? He had some of the greatest material prosperity in life At a point in his life when he was the most spiritually bankrupt. Lazarus learned better. When it comes to the realm of the natural, so many people don't see the truth that God wants them to prosper financially. When I say there are people that teach these things, I'm not making this up. Every one of these quotes, again, are from the ministries that hold forth this teaching. As long as we seek the Lord, God makes us to prosper. Well, What about the people that prosper that aren't seeking the Lord? And what about the ones that Paul talked about that are poor in this world but rich in faith? I guess they're not using their faith to donate to the right ministry and that's why they're poor. Is that what the problem is? Imagine taking this message out to the rich man's gate and looking at Lazarus laying there surrounded by dogs, craving crumbs. He was so hungry and saying, you see all these problems you're having in your life? It's just like Job's friend said, if you were spiritually prosperous, you would be physically prosperous. Lazarus learned that a life filled with terrible problems does not mean that God is angry with you, that there's something flawed with you. He learned that a person could have such misfortunes in life and still be an individual that's most pleasing to God. Let's look at some examples in Scripture that verify this. In Ecclesiastes 8 and 14, going back to Solomon's statements about life, he said, there is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. This is how it is under the sun. Sometimes the wicked prosper and sometimes the righteous suffer. And you think about that, what Solomon is observing there in life, it's true. And the story of Lazarus illustrates that crystal clear. Here's a man who, so far as we can tell, was a righteous man because we find him, after this life, enjoying rest and reward from God. Comforted, the scriptures tell us. That is a man that during his life, He suffered as though he were a wicked person, even though he hadn't done things to apparently deserve all that magnitude of suffering. We could draw that comparison between him and Job. On the other hand, in this story, we see a rich man who was apparently unrighteous, at least in some degree, because it appears in the tenor of the way Christ tells the story that here's this beggar out there at his gate, full of sores, and he's doing nothing about it. It seems to me like, I hope I'm not mistaken in this conclusion, but it seems to me like that Christ intends to imply that this wealthy man ignored the suffering of his fellow man right there at his gate. While he fared sumptuously every day, he let that man suffer, surrounded by nothing but dogs for his comfort. That is a wicked man who appears to live a privileged life As though he was being rewarded like a righteous man. What does that teach us? That teaches us that the ultimate pay, the ultimate reward in being a servant of God doesn't come in this life. It comes in eternity. And I'll just confess to you, there's a part of me that says I don't like that. I don't want it to be that way. But I want to share with you why that sentiment is wrong. Do you want to be paid in worthless currency? Imagine living towards the end of the Civil War and having a job that paid you lavishly in Confederate dollars. It wouldn't matter how many Confederate dollars they paid you, that currency is about to be dramatically devalued. (laughs) Because the government that empowers that currency was about to collapse in, in that, uh, the occasion of the Civil War there. Why would we want God to pay us in the currency of this life in riches that decay? Where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, we studied earlier this week. When instead God offers to pay us in heaven's currency that is guaranteed eternally. Oh, don't get me wrong. I I want life's troubles to diminish. I want that. And we pray for that. And I don't believe that's wrong at all. We can read in the Bible men of God and women of God praying for relief from their problems. And that's fine to pray for relief from our problems, but we've got to face those problems with a sense of faith that says even somebody suffering as much as Lazarus can be pleasing to God, and as soon as this life is over, the trouble is over, and the reward begins. We want the balances to be equaled in this life. We want everybody to get their comeuppance in this life. And frankly, we really don't know what we're wishing for. Because if God precisely rewarded in this life, that wouldn't mean the end of our suffering. That mean that I'd have died as a sinner a long time ago. So I guess I can be thankful that God has stayed the hand of his wrath and withholds that reward for how we've lived for eternity. Gives us an opportunity to get things right, doesn't it? Moving on in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12, another example of a righteous man suffering. Paul said to the church at Philippi, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. Did the gospel of prosperity work for him? Was his spiritual pr- prosperity Directly proportional to his physical prosperity? Apparently not. He said there are times he was abased. There were times he was hungry. There were times he suffered need. That didn't mean he was ungodly or displeasing to God at all. Hear how he characterized his life in 1 Corinthians 4 and 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. In my lowest day, I never could say all of those things. My worst day, I never could say all those things. Hungry, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless. Does that mean that Paul was an ungodly man? What does the Bible say about this idea that if you'll just serve God, that that spiritual prosperity will bring you physical prosperity? 1 Timothy chapter 6 makes a very clear statement about that. In verse 5, he talked about people with corrupt thinking regarding wealth and blessings in life. He said, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. There are those in the first century that believe just what a lot of people believe today. That being godly is a means of receiving gain. That if you'll be more godly and have greater faith, that you'll have more gain. But that's not true. In studying this passage, I thought it might be helpful to consider it in other translations. Look how that phrase is rendered in the American Standard, the English Standard, the Revised Standard. Supposing that godliness is a way of gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Supposing that godliness is a way of gain. Consistently, that's how it's translated. Now take those translations and lay that over against some of those quotes we opened our study with. Every one of those quotes suggests that being godly is a way of getting more. I can't tell you how many times driving home from a meeting late Sunday night, I've got the radio on listening to some preacher blaring into the microscope, uh, microphone, if you'll just send us a check, God will bless you. You'll get a bigger check in your mailbox days later. It pains your heart to visit with the poor people who've had a lot of problems in life, going to the bank and borrowing money to donate to those carnival barkers pretending to be men of God, thinking that, well, if I'll just show a little more faith, that God will reward my godliness and all my Lazarus problems will go away. But being godly is not a means of getting more in this life. It's a means of an eternal reward. And Lazarus learned a lesson that makes that thought crystal clear. Look, I don't have to hurt like Lazarus in order to hurt. I don't have to have problems as big as his were in order to have problems that challenge me and challenge my faith. The extremity, the severity of his example, the magnitude of his suffering sets before me an idea that says, whatever it is that I'm suffering in life, whether it's great or whether it's relatively small compared to Lazarus, it's still my suffering, my problem I've got to learn to wake up tomorrow and deal with in a godly way one more day. But Lazarus' story is brimming with hope that says, hang on, better times are coming. And those better times are eternal. Lazarus learned a lesson about God's love. It sort of flies in the face of this thinking of this gospel of prosperity to walk by a rich man's gate and see a beggar laying there craving crumbs and dogs licking his sores and look at that person as now there's a person that God loves. But some people have a distorted view of God's love that they look at that and they can't see God's love. But when you read the remainder of the story, it's easy to see God's love. For 2,000 years, Lazarus has not known hunger. For 2,000 years now, he has not known sores. For 2,000 years, he has not known the disgrace of poverty and homelessness. For 2,000 years now, he has not craved crumb. For 2,000 years now, he has enjoyed comfort. Based on that, I feel confident in saying that today, Lazarus doesn't care how poor he was. Today, those problems don't matter to him. Today. I know in the midst of those problems, it's a firestorm going on around you. You're in the midst of a heavy storm. And if you've ever been in the midst of a heavy storm of bad weather, you know it can be disorienting. You get into a tornado or close to a tornado or in a bad hurricane or some kind of a blizzard type weather or those hard winds that will hit sometimes out west. It can disorient you if you get out in it. And I know life can make us feel that way sometimes with a storm of troubles that life brings our way. But Lazarus knows none of that now. He knows naught but the comfort that comes from the hand of God. And it's comfort that doesn't just reward for the duration of his short life on earth. It's comfort that lasts forever. It's just now been 2,000 years because time's still going on. The clock's still ticking. But long after our clocks have faded to nothing, Lazarus will continue to be rewarded and comforted and soothed and eased and understanding that it's worth it to serve God. First John three seventeen 17 says, Whoso hath this world good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? This passage sets before us a notion that if somebody sees someone else suffering and turns a deaf ear to that suffering, and doesn't try to help them, we're not talking about luxuries, but somebody that has real needs, somebody like Lazarus, That that's an individual that is lacking God's love in their heart. As we read the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the way Jesus told it, we can't help but get the feeling that the rich man was just such an individual as described in 1 John 3, 17. Right there at his gate, he saw a man very hungry, very much in need, and he apparently cared nothing for it. So we would join this passage in looking at that rich man and say, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Lazarus learned Please grab hold of this. You may have times in your life when you need this. Lazarus learned that God will love you even when people won't. I guess it'd be easy to lay out there at that gate and feel like nobody cares. So far as the details Christ gives in the story, nobody did care. But God did. Well, then why didn't he fix it? He did. But not... For just the span of his life, he fixed it for eternity. He gave it a fix that lasts. This wasn't just wrap it and duct tape and call it good. This is an eternal fix. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, When we were still without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the eternal fix. That's the love of God. People look at Lazarus and say, Where's the love of God? The love of God is bleeding out its lifeblood on the cross, fixing that poverty. Fixing that hunger, fixing that sickness, not for the temporary moment of life, but eternally. A fix that lasts. And he gave his son to make that fix happen. Where is the love of God indeed? The love of God screams from the Bible's pages and in the gospel call that echoes out to people feeling helpless. Just like Lazarus and says, there is rescue available. And it's rescue that's meaningful like we studied about last night. Lazarus learned a lesson about suffering. He learned some important lessons about suffering. You know, there's, there's not a magical formula we can follow that helps us take life's grief and just wither it away so that we don't hurt anymore. If there's such a magical formula, I would love for someone to teach it to me. Our response to suffering in life is not about making our suffering go away, but it's about learning how to respond to our suffering in a way that honors God. And it can, at times, give us a sense of relief from that suffering. We learn how to deal with that grief, but as far as making it completely vanish, no. That's not what it's about. Our suffering in life takes on meaning when we think about a story like Lazarus. A message that's taught in Romans 8 and verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. As Paul here in Romans 8 anticipated his heavenly reward, he said the problems I'm having now are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed someday. Our knee-jerk response to somebody saying something like this is, well, yeah, but they haven't suffered like I have. Go back in your minds and remember the things that Paul talked about as he described his suffering in Philippians chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians where we read earlier in chapter 4. Homeless, beaten, hungry, abased. All those strong words he used to describe what we would characterize as an underprivileged life. And no wife to share that with. He teaches us in his Corinthian letter that he was an unmarried man, so apparently no children to gather around him and give him that joy. Nothing like that. But what he did have was a heavenly hope. And that heavenly hope is what carried him through his suffering. He explained it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he said, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, which while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The problem Solomon had in that window of his life that was so wasted under the sun was that he was looking only at things that were temporal and using his gifts accordingly. And that left a meaningless life. The only way to have a life filled with meaning is to look at the things that are eternal, look beyond the suffering laying here at this gate, so hungry, and all these sores, and the lack of attention, the lack of help that I'm receiving. You don't just focus on that. I know we're going to be aware of our problems. It's unrealistic to think that I'm just going to mentally forget that I've got problems. But I view these problems through this scope of having this eternal hope that says someday I'm going to have a reward that's going to make this a light affliction. That's hard to believe some days, but it's true. Earlier I painted this picture of Lazarus today not caring how much he suffered way back then. And this passage is brimming with that thought. Today, Lazarus's hunger and the shame and the homelessness and the sores, all that's a light affliction. It's faded to nothing because of this eternal weight of glory that now rests in His reward. Revelation 14 and verse 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And their works do follow them. This passage shows us that Lazarus' suffering ended in death because he apparently died faithful to God. And what does he have now? Just like Jesus told the story, he had rest. He had comfort. That's what made those problems fade, is the hopeful passing into that eternal realm. Consider, if you would, please, another thing that he learned. Lazarus learned about problems in life that all things work together for good. In Romans 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I believe that we've misunderstood this passage at times, but there's an important lesson here that we need to learn. And I believe Lazarus experienced that lesson and his life demonstrates that lesson. Here's what I mean by those words. Sometimes... We think in terms of of this passage telling us that whatever problem I'm having in life, it's just all working out for things in this life to get better. So if I have this problem, it's okay, just be patient before long. That problem is going to set it up for bigger problems to go away and for my life to get better than it was before that problem hit. It's really kind of a lot like that gospel of prosperity thinking that All things in life work together so that the righteous will prosper more in this life. Brethren, I don't believe that's what this passage teaches. Let's consider this idea. Let's just make a simple graph and let's put this spin on this passage. Let's put that to the test. If all things work together for good means that everything I suffer in this life is working for things to get better for me in this life, here's what ought to happen. My life quality, as it's gradually getting better, should enjoy success. But then along comes some problem that I have, and now I'm worse than I was before with this problem. And someone comes along and says, don't worry, Dave, all things work together for good. So that should mean that whenever I get over this problem, that I'm going to be better than I was before. But the reality is, when I get over one problem, sometimes it's followed by another. Even though life may momentarily get better, eventually I've got another problem and things are worse again. But if all things work together for good, then means that I'm going to have it better in this life. Every time a problem comes along, it's going to get better. Then that should mean that eventually it'll get even better than it was before. And every life of every believer ought to be just generally. We just get more wealthy and more happy and fewer problems as all these things work together for a better mortal temporal life. But I don't believe what this, that's what this passage teaches. If we take that view on this life, that puts our focus on things of the earth. And we learned in last night's study, we should set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. If that's what Romans 8 and 28 is teaching, then that teaches me to set my affections on he- uh, earthly things to get better and better as I suffer. Furthermore, somebody's life like Paul, somebody's life like Lazarus shows, that's not true. It doesn't work that way. Well, what is that teaching? I believe it's teaching essentially the same thing that he taught when he said, Our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Because you look in the context of Romans chapter 8 where that statement is made and he talks about the resurrection from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. That's talking about the resurrection of the body. In verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Again, talking about the resurrection. And there's more in Romans chapter 8 about the resurrection. I believe what Paul said there in verse 28 is saying that all these troubles that we're facing now are working for us, that exceeding and eternal weight of glory someday in the resurrection. That's the context that he discussed. And so my hope, like Lazarus, needs to be in, look, I'd love to have some relief I mean, there's some things that are bugging me, and you've got things that are bugging you, and some days it gets really bad, and I'd love to have relief, but when I don't get the relief I feel like I want or need, I've always got my heavenly hope as long as I'm faithful. I've always got that Lazarus thought that says, you know, someday this is going to get better. Soon enough, maybe not, but someday. Lazarus also learned... What the psalmist talked about in Psalms 23 and verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Lazarus walked a lonely and painful road. Why did he suffer more than others we read about in Scripture? I don't know. I don't know why God allowed the circumstance of his life to be so difficult, and we read of other believers in Scripture who had a, by our measure of things in this life, a better life? I don't know. But I do know that wherever our life takes us, even if it's down to death's dark, shadowy veil, God is still there with those that are faithful and will guide us all the way. Whatever sorrow, whatever confusion, whatever problem Lazarus wrestled with as he laid out there at the rich man's gate, He had this promise from the book of Psalms. And that promise is vividly realized when a gathering of angels met him at Death's River and carried him home for eternal relief. The book of Psalms chapter 48 and verse 14 says, This God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. We navigate a realm we know not when we approach the realm of death. And even for the strongest believer, it can feel like an uncertain journey. But Lazarus learned in his life demonstrates a lesson that teaches us that we can trust God to carry us through. When we come to that most difficult moment, we can trust God that He'll bear us hence to that land of comfort at which time we forget all life's problems. The lessons that Lazarus learned are most meaningful to us. And they boil down to this summation of life and what matters the most in Psalms 146 and verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. You look at Lazarus and you might not think he was happy. But I will tell you, he had a joy the rich man couldn't deprive him of. A joy that landed him in heaven's eternity or in eternal rest as we await that final gathering someday at the end of time. Whatever other problem he had in life, it's been solved. And I know sometimes life seems to swallow us up with difficulties And we look at an experiment like Solomon's and we think, boy, I'd like to try some of that privilege. It might make me feel a little better. But the reality is the real relief comes in eternity. But you can't have that relief without Jesus. Don't you want Him as your Savior now? If you're not a Christian... Think of becoming a child of God so that wherever your life takes you, if it's as low as Lazarus or if you climb as high as somebody who prospered like David or Abraham, wherever you are in life, you'll have an eternal hope that no one can take away from you so long as you serve God faithfully. Know that as your peace and your comfort today. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with life's difficulties, there's help with God's people, with prayer, with study of His Word. And if you need help, We want to offer you our help. The shepherds of this flock, others here, would be happy to study with you and help you and work with you. If you need the church's prayers toward that end as a child of God, we'd love to assist you in that way. If we can help you in either way, please come to Jesus now while we stand and sing.